Hey, welcome back to the Must Mate podcast. This is Jack Workforce. Sorry to everybody who's been waiting for the new episode. I know it's been nearly, well, it's been over a year, isn't it? Uh, so apologies to you. Um, I've had loads of messages. As some of you may have seen, I've just released an album called Set and Setting. Uh, you can go check that now. It's out now. And thank you to everyone who's supported it so far. It took all my focus, as any good creative process should. Uh, yeah, I'm back. And for the rest of this year, there's going to be a lot more episodes. I've got people lined up. We just haven't been able to get the diaries and uh, have enough sort of lead time to get them recorded. But I've got people lined up, exciting guests lined up. We're going to have that popping again this year. If you're new to the podcast, we're going to talk about creative process. We're going to ditch all of the technical stuff. We're not going to talk about plugins. We're not going to talk about any of that. We're going to talk about the hardships, the toils, the struggles of being a creative and you can go back and listen to the previous episodes. I've had D-Bridge, Alex Perez, LSB, DRS, Sinistar, Tim Reaper, Kazra. And we did a questions episode that I may do another one thereof. Today's episode is a bit of a special one because I managed to get hold of a recording of a conversation that I had with Dave Jenkins, who's a journalist for UKF, DJ Mag, resident advisor, among others. And he's... One of the last sort of really, really good and understanding journalists who has time and energy to put into those real deep and meaningful conversations where I feel like so much journalism is kind of lacking nowadays. Um, and he sent me the recording that I had with him, which was about my album. Um, so it's a bit of a shameless plug, really, but I just listened to it and I thought it was really um, had some gold in it and thought it would make a cool podcast episode. So we get into quite deep topics you know um about my album process but also more broadly about what's going on in in music at the minute and it's a really i think it's a really rich and meaningful hopefully conversation um and it's kind of a nice welcome back to the podcast so yeah enjoy the episode thanks for sticking around or welcome back or welcome if you're new to the podcast enjoy You said something that was really profound last time we spoke on the phone, and I think you said it as well on your podcast. And this is like basically you for you, creativity is problem solving. Um, which kind of I wrote it down in massive block capitals on my pad at the time because I just thought, go on, that's not how I would describe creativity in any way at all. And that's you know, whether it's animation or whether it's music, creativity is problem solving for you. That's super interesting. But I, I think I don't think it's just me either i think creates creativity problem solving for everybody it's no matter how you look at it i think like there was a cross talk i watched the other day that db masterclass he says it in that he he was actually a lot more eloquent with it than i am in my thinking but ultimately you're thinking about the next goal or how to achieve a sound or how to get inside the essence of the idea you're trying to convey and all of that is problem solving. I know you're, you're trying to find the quickest route from A to B. Um, and that's like when people say, oh, have you done your 10,000 hours, blah, blah, blah. Um, ultimately, when you've done your 10,000 hours, it means you're getting from A to B quicker and still achieving incredible results. And you're sort of like, you know, you're, uh, and it's learning, isn't it? Creativity is learning. It's learning, it's learning through process. 
Right. Okay. So I mean, because I, I I related to like my creativity. So I want to tell a story. I want to get a message across. How do I do that? I guess that is problem solving. I just don't see it as a. It, it, it's not a problem. You literally just said it. You just said, "I've got a story. How do I get it across?" There's your problem. It's like yeah. It's it's the the classic you know dynamic of getting from A to B and how do I do it in the best way possible. You know, having a vision, having a vision and trying to work out the best way to convey it, you know. Um, I feel like sometimes the path of least resistance doesn't necessarily lead to the best results because it's like you're just doing the thing that feels easy where sometimes you should move towards the thing that feels more difficult. That's right, yeah. I mean, that's been like a mantra of mine recently anyway is to, if something feels scary, for my own well-being i often find that i hate myself when i move away from scary things rather than moving towards them so if something intimidates me once you get over the initial sort of fuck that's scary um you can sort of move towards it and be rationalize it a bit more and when you do that you ultimately feel better about yourself because you're like well yeah instead of doing what i used to do which would be me which would be to move away from the scary thing you move towards it and you actually realize you know it makes it smaller and you realize it's actually you're better for it. Yeah, yeah, totally. So what was the scariest thing then about this album? Um, well, the scariest thing really was just how much everything changed when I decided to write it because obviously I, when I started the Late Night Soundtrack project, this was still when Spectrosol was going, but I was still sort of working on my own. I had this idea from the get-go to do the, the Late Night Soundtrack thing as an album. Um, but I was advised by most people and very sensibly that because it was a new project, it was probably not the best way to, to go about it. So it never, it never got the same consideration that this project did in terms of how it all fits together as an album. It was more just like a theme across three EPs, you know, and I stretched that out, um, across like a year. Um, so it, it, yeah, it didn't get the same consideration here. But what happened when I came to approaching this, I don't know whether before COVID happened, I thought I was going to do this or not. Um, but what was scary was the fact that the rug got pulled out from everybody. So, so no one knew like what the future was going to look like in terms of how people were going to experience music. Like, were we going to get clubs back? Were we going to get, um, you know, venues back? Or was it literally, was that over? Like that's how scary it felt at certain times. Um, so I guess that was worrying, you know, but, but weirdly with that sort of change in circumstance and also, you know, the change in which your music sort of heard or tested, like you're not able to go out and test stuff on people. Um, that, that stuff was all scary, but it also sort of gave a rigidity to the sort of daily routine, you know, like, after we, the fear had died down. So basically I, in, from March to July, 2020, I was sat, I took all my studio gear home. I'd literally just moved into this new room, right? I took all my gear home and had it all set up on the coffee table. And then when it came around to July and we were a bit more used to it and it was summertime and it was like, mm, maybe I could, you know, I got, I bought, I basically bought a car cause I live 10 miles away from the studio. And then between that July and like, the middle of last year i was every single work day of the week i was just in here you know it was a proper routine in and out writing focusing and i think it just sort of started to it gave me the opportunity to think about the stuff that i wanted to think about with the late night soundtrack but actually give the music as a whole 
that consideration as an album rather than just themes amongst a group of tracks. Hey, cool, because I was going to ask, I mean, is this, would you consider this the Workforce debut? Because, I mean, the Late Night Soundtrack was always meant as an album. And when we spoke about, you know, the, we did the very first Workforce interview, didn't we? And yeah. that was going to be an album at the time. But this is almost like, this is your second chance to do a debut album, really, in a way. Like, you, you do get a second chance because you've been through that kind of debut album head fuck before with Dave. And now you're mm. doing it on your own. This is a second chance to do that kind of real conceptual body of work as a, as a body of work and really think about it as a whole project this is quite a rare moment isn't it in that way yeah um well you need that, that that's scary so to speak to your last question that that was scary um based so with the late night soundtrack i don't consider it an album i consider it what you'd call an lp in the sense of um because I didn't approach it in the way of an album, if that makes sense. There's there's threads that run through all the music, but I think that's the same. That could be the same with even EPs I've done for Exit or 1985. There's themes, right? Um, and I never had all the music together and then went, those are going to be the 12, and they fit together as a 12. I always was just like, group of four, group of four, group of four, right? Whereas with this, it was very much like, right, there's eight tunes there, and they sound, they have a theme, or they have some unifying features about them. What sort of styles haven't I got that I want to represent on this record? And how do I tie these really broad styles together somehow? Because they're quite different. Like there's certain tracks that you, you may listen to and think that doesn't sound anything like this track on the same record. So how do I tie that all together? Um, so yeah, it, this one very much felt like the different <laughs> it had all the difficulties that we had uh writing spectrosol albums um in terms of like really overthinking really being over analytical um you know there were weeks where i would just come in here monday to friday and just listen to all the music and it was probably torturous you know like really torturous but now that i'm and at the time i was thinking why am i doing this to myself like what why am i just li like critiquing it and, and doubting and getting in my own way and now, all those things that I chat about on my podcast in terms of process, in terms of pe what people do to get to, to sort of stop themselves finishing, you know, like tweaking little things that no one's going to ever listen to or notice, you know, and, it, and a lot of it is just, it, it, it's part of the process and it does serve a, fun a, a purpose, but only to a certain point. So <laughs> that's the, for me, how I can give it the official sign off of, of an album is that it's been really considered as a whole thing, as opposed to, late night soundtrack which i felt was just like a considerate uh, a collection of singles uh, yeah. or like you know there was there, again there's like threads but with this album there's there's a lot more consideration about how it all comes together yeah definitely and you can really feel that as well you can really feel that i mean to go into the kind of set and setting title mm -hmm. really because mm -hmm. i think that that is where it all comes together in a sense and this is all about context and the time that you've been through personally the room that you're sitting in talking to me now your yeah. headspace but also mm -hmm. the people who are part of your life and you, during the last two years the small amount of people it makes you realize how small your circles actually really are you know we go around and we've, we've got lots of friends that we see on the weekends when we're out working but generally when we were all taking away from that circuit 
mm. you know, you only with like two, three, four people, like, you know, very close members of your family. Some people were completely on their own for long, long, long periods of time. And I think yeah. that's what set, set and setting is about there really in a way, isn't it? Like all of these things, context. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was a funny one because I am like a sort of, I'm not antisocial, but I'm comfortable if I'm just at home, you know? If there's a if if I can make sense of what the social gathering is going to be like, I'm I'm happy in it. But a lot of the time, I feel more comfortable just me and my missus, or me and one friend, or me and two friends. Or something. Um, and I guess that was actually part of the problem with this process was that it was there was no feedback loop in the sense. I was very much on my own. I felt very much on my own for a lot of it, and I had to like lean on contemporaries of mine or peers of mine. And you know, so I sent like a few close people to me the record as as it was progressing and sort of getting feedback and ideas and all that sort of thing but then you i sort of realized that no one cares as much as me about how it all comes together so i have to ultimately rely on myself um with the set and setting thing um it's like i said i've just spent like the last two weeks really agonizing over over like writing sort of five six hundred words about what this concept's about and it's and it's essentially like I've been really interested for like years in quantum physics, but that sort of led me to this, this, this idea of um, biology filling the gap with quantum physics, where like all these things we can't make sense of. If you start to consider human biology within it, it starts to make some sense. And the idea is that there's no like objective reality. Everybody has a different uh, a reality because it's like a reanimation of, what you see, what you hear, what you smell, touch, whatever, like all of that just shapes an, a subjective reality between your ears. Right. Um, and it's, and, and I guess I was really interested in how, where music uh, sort of fits within that context and how it sort of shapes people's experiences and then how, how those experiences shape people's sense of reality and what they bring to it in terms of their, mindset and they're sort of where they are and, and and also within the context of lockdown you know like do we have to consider this new unknown setting that this music is going to be consumed in in the future you know like is are we going to be hearing stuff loud on big sound systems now or do i have to really consider that this is going to be listened to just on a hi-fi at home or on headphones or something you know so all of those things like main, mainly the way it was going to be received and listened to but as well as being open to the idea that my mindset and my setting and my reality is going to shape all of this music and how those two things sort of those aspects interact with each other, you know, like, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's I, I, I was aware when I was writing all of this and, and, and all that sort of shit, that I'm, I'm potentially like post rationalizing it, but actually so much of what I was thinking about was really powerful in, in what I was writing here in the sense that, I would be listening to a podcast or two on from work in the car or like on long drives, whatever. And I'd be, you know, I'd get in some days after work and I'd walk in and I would have just turned off a podcast and I'd be like, fuck, that's like really interesting. And I might like, you know, there's loads of samples from podcasts and talks I was listening to in the record. Um, and, but it, but it became aware, I, I became sort of aware after I'd finished it. And fortunately, cause I finished it like almost end of last year, middle of last year, I had quite a lot of time to reflect back and think about it. And, it, and I realized how, how much of that sort of theoretical stuff that I was sort of messing around with thinking about impacted what I was doing here. 
And, and obviously, hugely. You know, I'm going to stop you there for a second because there's so much information to take in and absorb there. <laughs> and it all makes complete sense. Right down to the point of so you've got these vocal samples running throughout the album. And the first voice that you hear, as I identified when you sent it to me on email, was Fotech. And yeah. he's saying, you know, jungle is everything that we listen to outside the jungle, effectively, in summary. Um, and that was, I've been looking for that quote forever because it's always, it almost felt like an urban myth that he'd ever said it. And loads of people have paraphrased it in interviews before, people like Goldie and people like Darren. And I'd never actually found the original source. And it gave me so many goosebumps to hear that. But with you, you what you're listening to outside of Jungle, outside of Drummer Bass, outside of your day-to-day work, are these podcasts, are these huge, huge yeah, courses exactly. of science, like which question reality, which question perception, which completely flip things, even in those little set samples that you've got on the album, which are really well placed. They, if you stop and listen to them, it, they blow your mind. Like if that's not what you, if that's not the discourse that your head is inside normally, if you're an academic or if you listen to a lot of these podcasts, then that's, you know, you're quite used to these type of mind blowing twists of perception but there is so this is what your this is your reflection so uh, you know instead of sampling old motown records which is essentially what photek was on about sampling jazz records sampling what we you know what you're listening to outside this is you sampling your own thoughts in a way and reflecting your own questioning reality at points really aren't you like yeah that is thank you you get it Thank you. That's exactly it in a nutshell. And I'm going to nick what you just said and put it into my little spiel that I've written here because um, that'll be it is exa- that's exactly what it is. I mean, aside from the fact that I feel a real affinity with Protech, not because I love, not just because I love his music, but where you hear him talk about using drums as an instrument, that's just me like through and through like, the strongest part of my production is not like how it sounds or the mix or like even the songs for me, it always has to be the drums. Um, I'm from like a percussion background. Like my dad's been a, a drum player for since I was a kid. So I've brought up in like Afro Cuban music, like Latin music. So jazz. So for me, it's always been about drums and obviously, but you know, when, when you're in the album process, you're trying to keep inspired. So you're watching lots of stuff, you know, like I'm listening to podcasts, I'm watching docs about, you know, that one's from, I think like talking heads or something, metal heads, um, you know, watching stuff to kind of create a richness of ideas so that what comes out feels, um, familiar to a lot to drum and bass people, but also brings some new flavor to it. Um, and yeah, that, that sample was just like, it just says everything that I love. Well, he, I'm not like appropriating what he said, but I just think that it's really important that people realize that drum and bass shouldn't be inward looking. It should be outward looking and then bringing more in to keep it rich. Otherwise it dies. And it feels like things are, are things are outside of, you know, it feels quite homogenized. I feel, and I feel like lots of people are looking at what other drum and bass, drum and bass people are doing rather than what is going on more broadly with the idea media, of, i think because yeah. of yeah i'm not too sure because it's not so new as well so you know i'd say up to your generation you didn't come in to drum and bass through listening to drum and bass mm. you uh mm. hip-hop plan and stuff like that most people i know came into it either through rock or hip-hop those two kind of polar yeah. ends really um but the next generation the people who are in their 20s now 
they've grown up with this. They they yeah. heard DJ Fresh at number one when they were in high school, and they yeah. drum and bass has been their their rock or hip hop. So yeah. they inspired by it all that's, of the time and that's we a really good point a little bit older so we we had to come from other musics because this you know wasn't it, it i mean it was around when i was a teenager and you're a tiny bit younger than me like i got timeless when i think it was 14 but none of it made sense for me until i was about 18 19 and i had to go through lots of other musical paths and i know everybody else our age our generation slightly younger did but the other generation who've come after came into drum and bass so they that's their reference points in yeah. that way really that's a really good that's a really good point actually i was just listening to on the way in i was just listening to the broken record broken record podcast the rick rubin one and he was talking to flying they was talking to flying lotus and he was talking about they were talking about hip-hop and he was saying when i got into hip-hop there was no mainstream hip-hop it was it was all underground hip-hop so the idea that there was like this relationship between the mainstream and the underground just didn't exist then because hip hop was all underground. And I would say, and it got me, th- I was like, fucking hell, when I got into it, there was no Pendulum, there was no DJ Fresh, there was no chart drum and bass at all. It was all underground. Um, but then maybe I feel like, you know, when you mentioned Timeless, that's an example of where it broke through to the mainstream, but it wasn't a homogenized sound. It was very true to what drum and bass is about i think um and now we've got to this point where the stuff that breaks through isn't isn't really the 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 heart and soul of what drum and bass is about it's more homogenized and, and obviously you've got that sort of tension between mainstream and underground all the time and like so but that again i guess we weren't constrained by that well no, i wasn't there but you know people that were making music in the 90s weren't thinking oh if i do this like this i'll get to there you know even the stuff like the mainstream stuff you remember you remember like what was it everything but the girl did some drum bassy type things or bjork or you know back then they were still quite credible records they weren't like you know yeah 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 and bowie as well like the little wonder tune and stuff like that it was pure experimentalism really i think that was the beauty and the recklessness of the 90s which you know which we we can't really kind of recapture again but it's really important and it's my advice to anybody who ever asked me for any type of advice or people i mentor is listen to other shit listen to other stuff go and see a fucking punk band go and listen to loads of uk garage like you know listen to everything you can outside because that's where you'll get your ideas from there's no point in the next fog horn or whatever yeah because you're trying to shape your voice. So to shape your voice, you shouldn't be like doing impressions of other people, you know, like it feels like, yeah. it feels like, you know, you should be able to do a good impression of say like a jazz idea over here or a rock idea, but then it's like, it's that ethic of mashing them together. And I feel like that's, that's one of the main things I've thought of with the workforce project really. And with the podcast idea um, is to shine a light on sort of the artistry that can be achieved within a music that people bastardize and think is really disposable. Like it's, they, well, I think there still are pockets of real artistic richness in drum and bass, right? But there's also a lot of disposable stuff that is here today and big and people are like, well, that thing, and you won't remember it in like not even that long. You know, there's so much of it and so much of it just falls by the wayside. So that, that, was a big consideration for me also is is like trying to make trying to not put anything on a record that's not got a purpose for being there or that that it has to have a special place for me regardless of what it sounds like but also be trying to do something 
you know, trying to achieve something, even even if it's not the one that resonates with the most people, like those are my favourites, you know, the ones, there's a couple on the record where they were there or thereabouts when I was doing the late night soundtrack, but I was just like, they just don't fit on that project. I love them, but they don't fit on that project. So I'm going to hold on to it and put it towards right. what I think is an album. Cool. Cause mm-hmm. I was going to ask about that because there were, I mean, this, this isn't the only lockdown thing you did. You have, you've been incredibly prolific during all of this time as there was the mood CP and there was what the other one as well, care and consideration as well. So I yeah. don't know if they were kind of projects that were kind of already in the making before all of this happened, but you were super busy anyway. Mm. So I didn't know whether, you know, the kind of, there was a certain point at lockdown where you thought, right, it's album time or whether those eps were done and this was the collection that was building up anyway in parallel if you like i think i remember at the tail end of 2020 there was a bit of tension because um the music that i'd signed with kazra was finished but i just had to get the pre-masters out and send them off to be mastered right and i think i think that was in like tail end of 2020 um and Around the same time, I was in the writing process of the stuff for 1985. Um, but I was just writing a lot at that point. Like, so the stuff that I gave to Alex was probably being written around the same time that the album was being written. Um, apart from, so the Don't Tell Part 2 was written in my old studio. So that would have been in 2019. I think I wrote that like end of 2019. Um, and then the Javon one, I actually wrote at my coffee table during lockdown one. Um, so between March and July, and then the last two I made when I got, no, actually, so was the apply the brakes one was also made there. And then I made the last June reasons when I got back here. And that was like, that was one that I was like, I'm not sure if I want to let this one go to Alex. I might want this one for the album, but then in the end it was like, yeah, okay, sure. So it was all sort of overlapping that you, it's, it's very rare that you get to the end of one project and then go, I'm starting another one. There's lots of overlap. Um, and that's a good way. I, th- I feel like it's a good way to work because there's never a dull. You're never stopping. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, if you, yeah, if, if you're not feeding one particular project, there's something else to jump into. There's another plate to spin. Yeah, and I think that's the a, a, an honest reflection of a creative life as well. Like no yeah. project ever pays enough for you to focus on that fully and nothing no. else. You need to be doing shit loads of stuff. One to stay at that momentum anyway, and two to make a living. <laughs> but it also doesn't. It also um, breeds a sort of. Um, lack of inspiration you need like you have to have things going on to keep things moving otherwise you end up you know you end up down the rabbit hole in one project it's where it's where this animation stuff's been really nice was tail end of last year for tail end of last year tail end of 2020 yeah 2020 these last two years are literally just up um tail end of 2020 (laughs) i spent loads of time um, working on the animations for the 1985 EP that I did and for the critical EP. And I wanted to get them all out of the way because I knew I had this album project that was sort of percolating. It was sort of there. And then basically between sort of October, November and March, April of last year, I really buckled down and got the album finished. Um, but then, yeah, like I said to you, then once it was all bounced out and I was like, I think those are the 12 tunes that I want to have. I spent like weeks just fucking ripping it apart. Absolutely ripping it apart. Just 
I spent I spent quite a lot of time actually once they, the, all the music was finished thinking about how I can tie them all together and that I did quite a lot with um, sort of atmospheric sounds so there's like a thread of atmospheric sounds that run through the whole record um, there's also some instrumentation that I used towards the back end of the record where I had my mate Lee who's in the studio here he's a saxophone player and I got him playing over you know some of the harder tracks towards the end but also like the big sort of dubby outro because he's a dub um he's got a dub section uh, i've got some cool video of them recording it actually it's cool is that leroy horns is it yeah 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 um so he's a brighton it's kind of like a brighton dub dub sax legend um and he just happens to have a studio with his partner here um and through lockdown you know i didn't see many people and i was just sort of like crossing paths with these lot every every other day and it would be like Lee, do you fancy doing like there was just a point where I was like, do you fancy because I had some of the harder tunes on the record, right? I was like, these kind of work, right, as as drum and bass tunes. Um, but they don't speak to me because they're they're just they they sort of fit in a box in terms of a sound. Yeah, yeah. They'd kick off in a club, they'd be quite functional bangers or rollers, but they do. And I was going to ask about the horns and stuff, because it is you've managed to create this arc with the and that outro is really important, I think. Because you start off, there's it's there's gentle, soulful moments, but towards the end, it's you know, if you're following it chronologically or thinking about kind of what mindset you might have been in and because of the spoken word samples and because of the whole like set and setting concept of it it almost feels like you know these are the moments where you're losing your grip on what we all deem to be reality in a way where things yeah. have got quite intense but the horns really add that kind of human intensity yeah. And that last track certainly is a really like there, there's a sense of finality there because you come back round to a place that people know you more for, and it doesn't finish on a really heavy one. Like yeah. I think it's attention to suffering, especially I think, and if you feel a heavy, hard, that's you at your iciest in a way. But the horns maintain that soul, if you like. I think. Yeah, I think that's interesting because um. I never go into a session right like when I'm writing. I don't go in with a, like an intention of a style of tune I want to write. I feel like if I ever find myself doing that, it, it's a recipe of disaster or like not achieving what you want. So well, not being yourself, I guess, because you're trying to fit you're trying to fit a square peg in a round hole type of thing. Well, yeah, I just think ultimately I'm really I'm like I've I always will be a big believer in process and and it it it's like it's about the relationship you generate with the music while you're making it that helps determine the outcome and it helps you determine the process like there's tunes of mine that i've made that no one i don't think many people like that are not the ones that people know of that i love because i remember how they came together i remember that feeling of what happened when it came together and i remember like ne not going back and changing the mix nothing just leaving it as like almost like a time capsule of what happened in that session and, and not changing the mix, nothing, you know, just like that's done. Right. There were a few of those on this record, but um, in terms of the horns and in terms of those, those tunes specifically, like if you feel an attention suffering, they were very specifically on that day, for whatever reason, I was writing harder music. Right. But like I said, it's like on their own, I was kind of like, yeah, they work, but I'm, I want something to bring them back to, to give them a, like a, a human or a sort of hopeful or different tone. Like how many, like this is the other thing. How many drum and bass records do you hear that have got like mad psychedelic saxophone on them? We haven't heard that kind of shit for years, you know? And I just thought, 
Oh, I think there's stuff like with A-Sides and Nathan Haynes, I think maybe is the first thing that comes to mind. And the only real thing that stands out in my head there, really. Yeah. Or, or on the mainstream side, Bensley, who plays the saxophone in a very, very kind of a different mainstream commercial way, but is also unique. But there aren't there aren't many examples of that at all, really. I think Caliber's probably played with those yeah. textures. But I think... I think also with stuff like that, it's the same with when you get original vocals. I feel, feel like a lot of drum and bass stuff, um, where particularly where you've used samples or it's in a particular style, if you want to take ownership of it, you have to bring this like human element in. So like original vocals obviously are a number one that's just like, you know, it makes it your song. So for example, um, you know, Death Dreams, for example, that was the last vocal I recorded. That's my, my girlfriend on there singing. Um, oh, cool. And she... It's, so it's Maddie Lane. So she did like Future with Breakage and I actually met her through music, very random. Um, she, that had a vocal on it before she came in. Um, and it's quite difficult to let go. It's like demo-itis, you get attached to a vocal. Um, but then it felt, once she did that and we lived with it for a bit, I was like, right, now that feels like it's finished and it's mine. And it was the same with the horns. It was like, attention to suffering. If you take the horns out, it's kind of just like a sort of straight, techie stepper type thing, right? And I was, and then I was kind of happy with it, but I wasn't, I didn't feel like I owned it because it wasn't, it's not necessarily my sound for that record. But then as soon as I, as soon as I got Lee in on it, I was like, right, Lee, you've got to do like all these records now. So he's done, he's done Observer, Attention to Suffering, So Long, and obviously the big, his big sort of participation was on the last one, uh, Reintegration. So, and it was about keeping a sort of human, hopeful touch to the tunes that even feel a bit bleak and dark at the end you know yeah um, yeah and that brings together the body of work as well that brings that it adds that another layer of consistency doesn't it it was the hardest part of doing the record it, i mean aside from the fact it was definitely the hardest musical project i've ever done um most difficult challenge ever um it bring that that aspect of it was the hardest bit was about having a thread that runs through from start to end that you can tell or you can see how they fit together sort of thing even in isolate in isolation they were but also together they work as a, a collection that was that was something actually like i didn't <laughs> you can also see there's a timeline here as well dave right so when we called spectrosol in october 2020 and we were like right that's that's that I think that was the spurring point for me to get stuck into this album because right. before I was, I was sort of half, I was half in, you know, like I was, we were still trying to make Spectrosile work, even though I was doing the workforce thing. I have to say, I'd forgotten about that announcement. It was relatively recently. It was during lockdown. It was during, yeah, I wonder in the shittest time of lockdowns. Yeah, it was. We'd gone into lockdown too when you did it. It was, it wasn't cool. Yeah. And at that point during lockdown where there was no gigs, I was like, you know what? This is the time. I've had it. I've had a. I've I've done well this year in terms of like connecting this project with the public and making people aware of what's going on. Blah blah. blah. And and it it meant where I was like half in. You know where I said like moving towards the thing that's scary. The thing that was scary was to have to not have any potential gigs from Spe Spectrosol that would subsidise my ability to do workforce music and to go fully like fuck it. The world's fucked. Nothing's going on. Let's have a crack at this. And then when we come back and, and just roll the dice and hope that there's something there for me when we get back. But that was the beginning of really being like backing myself and being like, right, let's do it. 
and and I guess actually on reflection, that was the time. The timeline matches up quite well actually, because those months after the sort of four or five months, it was me bringing together all the ideas that I had, plus writing the final tunes and bringing the whole thing together. So it was that that yeah, I hadn't thought about that, <laughs> but that that was probably a, a sort of kick up the ass to um to get over the line. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's one thing. I know this has been the hardest thing that you've done, but because of not being on the road, I speak to so many people who, you know, their, their album process is broken up from touring, the necessity of touring, that it's taken them so long. I mean, I remember some interviews years ago, it's more in the house and techno world where people have scrapped entire albums because it's taken so long that by the time they finished it, it's, some of it is already dated and yeah. they've gone, no, this isn't right. And, and it's because of gigs getting in the way, taking them out of that consistency mm. and that continuity of studio time and album craft. So mm. did that make it not to devalue how hard this was, but did the fact that you didn't have to think about gigs make it easier in that type of way? They, it gave you the focus in that sense. I think, I think there's two, there's two threads to this. So, so the first one is that, um, um, music was never going to get dated because everything stopped. So first of all, there was like a you know stopgap where everyone could go right. This is what my next thing's going to be. If no one hears it because no one's at clubs, it doesn't matter because it's not going to be dated. So first of all, there's that. So there's time to reflect and to think about what you want to do. Um, and I would say to your second to the second part of your question about like gigs Im impacting, I would say yes and no in the sense that. Yes, on the sense that, in the sense that you're not knackered on a Monday, Tuesday after gigging at the weekend, and you've not taken Friday out of your schedule, so you've got like a clear. For me, it felt like a, like I said to you, like a clear um, routine of get up Monday, every day of the week you're in there, you rigorously you're fucking working hard, you're trying to get shit done, and you know you can rest at the weekend and then come back and do it again, right? So there was that aspect of it that made it easier to do it. But a the, bit of but a rarity, my, a bit of a joy as well to actually have that. You know, you haven't had that for like 15 years, your whole yeah. adult career, pretty much. Like, exactly. To have proper rest to yourself. Yeah, yeah. So there's, so, there's, so there's that side of it where it's like, yes, you know, you can do your five days work and then two days rest and then go back. But in, this, but in another sense, um, because you don't have that capability to go out and get feedback of like how something is going to work in terms of, uh, in the world um, and whether people are going to like it it makes it so much more of a mental battle in the sense of is this good right and the only the only um, response you can get is from your peers and they're never going to be as brutally honest or as invested as you so ultimately you're, you're they're going to be like it's cool or like, yeah, I really like that. And you're like, well, how, how like, it, by what measure? Like, does you really liking it mean it's going to really work in the real world? Or <laughs> is it, it going to work in the polite or, yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. But, so it added that whole component of confidence and um, self-belief in what you were doing. That's the most helpful, though, because you you were part of a collective of artists and the people I most associate you with are some of the most critical um, and deepest thinkers, I think, in our kind of scene. Guys like Darren um, and people like that, uh, Alex, 
Um, and Kasra as well, you know, I mean, I don't know who you sent it to, but you you tend to roll with people who have very high standards, who put out incredible music. So I'm imagining that, you know, they, and you know them long enough and work with them, that these peers didn't pull punches as well. So I don't think anyone would have been just polite for the sake of just, oh, nice tune, mate. Everyone would have come back with something. It depends when you catch someone. Um, and you don't want to be too, like, pushy. It's tough. And, and, and I feel like I, I maybe pissed some people off during the process. Um, don't know whether I did. Never know. I'm, I, I got like during, during lockdown, like not only were, did I get like low mood and anxiety, I got this mad like paranoia because I was just in here on my own all the time. And I wasn't yeah. sure like, particularly when you're writing, you think people are like judging or thinking or, and you become so, it's a self-centeredness really. It's like ego getting out of control, thinking that people care about what you're doing, like more, no, they, they don't. Um, so that's all part of the perception and the reality in your own reality, isn't it? Exactly. You're creating the reality between your ears. Like on the one hand, you're thinking, I'm thinking, well, no one cares about this project as much as I do. So why am I going to ask them like for, for honest feedback? And on the other hand, I'm thinking, God, does everyone think I'm, a, I'm really annoying or like I'm nagging or blah, blah, blah. But, but actually I'm aware that that's just, that comes with being an artist, I guess, is that self doubt and that self criticism, but I'm just quite an open book and I'm quite happy to sort of, reach out to people quickly on WhatsApp or email or call them or whatever, where some people are more just like, they, I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I'm looking for confidence and, and sort of ideas and criticism from, from people immediately where other people would be like, I'm going to live with this for a bit. And they're more comfortable with what they think about it. I'm, I'm like, I think this is good. What do you, can you validate that almost, you know? Um, so, so certain people who are really helpful throughout the project, like um, Darren, Alex, Halogenics, LSB, um, who else am I missing? Dove Physics. You know, and I wasn't saying, I didn't send them like the full album at the end and go, what do you think of this? It was like, you know, tunes at a time. With being insular and being in here, you know, I've got WhatsApp on my computer, we're working on a tune and then chatting with someone at the same time, breakage, another person, you know, just like, collection of people who all have a similar idea about what they're doing and we all share ideas we all share knowledge you know we're, we're constantly being if someone will come into this group that i'm in and they'll be like does anyone know how to do xyz or does anyone know a contact for you know blah 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 and we're just like constantly sharing um and helping each other so that network was so super important over lockdown because because like <laughs> my partner couldn't understand what she, she understood to a degree the impact that lockdown had on us as an art profession. Um, but only other artists could understand fully what was going on, you know, and, and the same with writing an album, like, uh, and finishing a project, only those people can really understand what's going on. Um, so even like my bestest, oldest friends, if they're not in music or they're not doing what I'm doing, they don't, they don't have the perfect grasp on the struggle that's being sort of, dealt with at that time yeah, you know because it's all up in here and i'm the same with my you know i'm not an artist in that sense but it's creative living and it's it's self-employed and there's a lot of these paranoids i can relate to so many things that you're saying there but when i'm speaking to my friends none of them my day-to-day -day mates like my, my very close circle none of them are in this field and i gave up on trying to explain some of the stuff because it's all just in my head anyway and then uh, value then the fact that you don't have to talk about that or think about that and you 
it's another level of friendship then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're just completely away from it. And you, there might be points where you do if you're having a late night and you're chatting away and then you do kind of spill it all out. But it never makes sense when you're talking to, to somebody who's completely alien to this world. Yeah, it's odd, isn't it? And only artists or people in that kind of creative world. It's interesting. So I, like your missus is a singer then. So at least she kind of understood, you know, a lot of what you were going through then. Because my missus is like a very, very practical person. She worked in the corporate world for many years and stuff and is a problem solver in a very different way. Mm. And a lot of stuff I'd spill out and she'd just look and just be like, What's, that's not even a problem. That's not even an issue. That's just you being weird, mate. <laughs> it's, um, it's amazing uh, how much perspective you can get from someone like that who sees you every day and knows you really well um, and, can, and can sort of cut through all the shit with simple sort of you know just just sort of take the thing that you're wrestling with and give you some perspective on it that shows that it's like well actually it's not you know that big a problem you know grand scale you know on the one hand she'd be like well you're only a musician like you, you're flexible <laughs> but on the other you can see if i'm really struggling with something she just can get to the heart of it like straight away you know cut through um and like she deserves uh, like so much credit for um a lot of the ideas on the record really were, were her, like the record that I did with Shady. Um, I sent that to a few people um, and they were like, oh, the vocal's really good, but just not on that tune. And I was like, but I really, but that almost makes me want to do it more, you know? It's sort of, it's an uneasy fit. And I remember like, I played it to her and she was like, nah, that's wicked. Like, it's uneasy, but that's good because you want moments of uneasiness on the record, you know? Um, Darren the same with that one. He was like, yeah, yeah, stick that, leave it there. Um, you know, just sort of like, she could, I mean, she's not a drum bass head, but she can hear passion from me and help reflect it back to keep things going, simplify things down. Um, like I don't, I'll come home if I've had a good day and she'll, she's good at absorbing that energy and sort of helping bolster it sort of thing. Um, and obviously she had to be on the record. It was like, it was a no-brainer, yeah. really. Like, and we were. She's a teacher, so we recorded it in last Easter holidays, um, and that was like the last bit of recording for the record. And then I sort of like toiled over it for, for ages. Um, but yeah, it was funny. It kind of focused it. Like, part, I think I feel like <laughs> this is the first one where I've really had to lean on someone, like a partner. Um, I've had partners before when I've written records. In fact, the, the first two Spectral records, first two, yeah, first two Spectral records, I had a, a previous partner. But with this one, it was more. We were almost, yeah, it was kind of like really close on it. Um, not that she was listening to all the music, but more just like as a sort of emotional um, crutch. <laughs> Sounds yeah, awful, yeah. but like. No, 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 you need that. And prior to that, with Spectral Soul Records, I would have been, Dave and you would have been yeah. each other's crutch to that degree. So yeah. you wouldn't have had to have spilt as much out to your partner and your family and stuff. But with this, the whole idea and the whole isolation and the whole context was really interesting. I mean, literally, I just published um, a piece with Wilkinson, who, you know, he's just delivered his best piece of work ever, his album. Um, and that was all, you know, very much related. There's lots of parallels with what you're saying and what, what he was going through with his album. And how we turned you know uh, lockdown 
into a positive and made the most of it. But he worked with his missus and I'm finding more and more instances. I think possibly, you know, people get together because you meet each other through the music scene, but then you're not necessarily going to work with each other. And a lot of people are like, not the last person I'd ever want to work with is my partner because mm. we're partners and I don't want to be in a work type of creative situation. Mm. But because of the situation and being away from all of it and having such a weird time, more and more people have made records together which I'm kind of, I'm super jealous of because I don't have like, you know, I, I, yeah, it's not the relationship that I have with my missus. I, I romantically imagine what it could be like to create, you know, whereas most people have kind of put me in their places like it's not that easy actually because you both go in when you've got two creative minds, you can be quite fired up and then you have to be quite yeah. brutal with each other. Yeah, there's a separation that you have with a third party that you don't quite have with a partner because there's so much more, there's less filter between thought and speak so you know like if one of us doesn't like what the other's, other's doing where you might be a bit more diplomatic in a session with a, a singer you don't know that well with her it's like no i'm not like, i don't like that or with with me she'll be the same with me like you know a bit more and it can and obviously there's a lot of fragility that comes with showing each other your ability in a room you know there's a lot of like sensitivity around that um about about being judged and about like you know showing um, a sensitive side or expressing yourself, I guess. Um, that a lot of you know, I guess loads of people have, have trouble with that. But when you do it in front of your partner, it's like you're sort of, yeah, it's it's hard because you you obviously trust each other, but you also it's there's sort of a delicacy about it, I guess. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because you care about each other and you care about each other's feelings as well, I think, isn't it? Yeah. You know, the, this is a massively personal piece of work, your most personal body of work that you've ever made in your entire career so far. Yeah. Um, it, it's. I wouldn't say necessarily it's like the most personal I've ever made so far. I'd say it's all, all of it's personal because I'm quite a sensitive person. Um, so I feel like a lot of it is is like a real reflection, you know, of what's going on. But also it was just like, I w it was, it was the most challenging because, because it was just me, but also because I bit off a big, uh, probably a bit more than I could chew, you know, in terms of trying to um, stick to the drum and bass genre, which I was pretty sure from, from the get go I wanted to do. Um, but, but explore and almost like, I, I was like learning on the go to try and, I wanted to basically, I think I said this in the last UK interview that I, I don't want to be just like good at one style of drum and bass music. I want to be good at all of it. Yeah. Um, and, and turn my hand and show that I can do all of it. Um, I think that comes to that like problem with self-confidence. It's like, I almost want to just be like, no, I can do that. No, I can do that bit as well. Um, so it was like, like I wanted to just tackle all the styles that I like and, and bring, bring it all together. So I guess yeah, it's, it is really personal because it's it brings together like all the all the theoretical ideas um, that I guess lots of people will listen to. And what the fuck is he on about? Um, and all my influences and my will and sort of ADD like brain of not being not wanting to sort of cover the same ground over and over again. That's one thing I guess I'm really proud of with it is that there's not many tunes. There's not many times on the record where you, you're in the same space. There's lots. It's quite, it's quite different. Like from tune to tune, you might have like glimmers of bits that have gone before or what might come later. But 
I think each tune can stand on its own. Um, and I really wanted to make sure of that. I, you know, I, I, a lot of music got left on the cutting room floor that I love, but just didn't fit or was too similar to another one or didn't sound like an album tune. Um, you know, like there's another sort of 20 tunes there that I think they're really good. And that for no, they're not there on, they're not, not on the album on merit, but they're just not on the album because they didn't fit within the, the story and the aesthetic that I'm trying to present. That's the other thing, Dave, is that I really took it on. Like I did, I've done all the artwork. I've done all the animations myself. So like the only people working on this project are me and Amy and then my distributor, you know, all the artwork, all the animation. I was like, I was, I was sort of, that was so the tail end of last year was horrendous with the artwork. Um, I was basically, you know, I was talking to the guy who did the late night soundtrack artwork. um, This guy, Jason from New York really sick designer i loved his design for that and I, I he's got had this website and i was going through and i was like fuck he's got some amazing other work on there maybe this would fit with the album and then the more and more i i looked at it i felt like again to move towards the scary thing it felt like a cop out yeah it felt like, i have to do this i haven't seen the album have i i was just looking at the album folder that you've given me but it's just the music <laughs> there's no album oh, artwork there. i'll send you it now hang on um are you on are you on the internet now yeah 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 uh, okay. Uh, oh wow! Wow. Okay. Awesome. And yeah, there's you can see elements of this then in the singles that have already come out so far. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So the artworks, it's it's every every single is going to be different in terms of the art, but just like within the same theme. If that makes sense. So that will be not I'm not going to just do that standard thing of changing the colorways. This is the other thing, Dave. If you scroll down at the bottom, you see the center labels spinning around. Can you see yeah, those? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got really, really, really into these Fenakista scopes, which is like a still, you know, a still image when it spins, it reanimates, right? Yeah. Um, and I spent fucking months learning how to do them, right? Wow. And <laughs> mainly because, right, it it fits within the theme of reanimation. You know, it's still. But when you spin it, just through that act of spinning it, your brain creates motion from the uh, thing. Like a zoetrope, is it? Yeah, exactly. It's called a zoetrope. Yeah. Fenacusoscope zoetrope. The same, yeah, same, right, same. Right, 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 right. So those are the center labels on the record. Right, okay, wow. So my brain is creating that then. You've just literally, you've moved the line in each one. If I stop, can I stop it? I can't stop it. That's just going round they're, and they're round. They're gifts and they'll spin forever. <laughs> Brilliant. you come from a design background prior to music prior to spectrosoul and stuff is that was that kind of your projected career path if you didn't go on more of a kind of uh, risky scary one to make music for a living i so fuck um i did there's a graphic design at college then like art foundation then i studied graphic design at university at lcc and i graduated in like 2011 so basically what happened was while I was doing my degree, the Spectrosoul stuff was starting to kick off. It was starting to happen. Um, this was around the time of like Glimpse and, uh, you know, like Alibi, Organise, all those sort of records. And then when we left, when I left university, we'd signed our deal with Shogun to do the album and I left and immediately went into writing Delay No More. So 2011, summer of, and then we finished the album in February 2012. And then it came out that year. And since then, um, I've been full-time music. And 
I have done bits and bobs for the Spectrosol stuff. Like I did the Ishchat logo and all that sort of crap, but like not really. And it's only really over this last, since I started the workforce thing that I was like, right, well, I'm going to obviously do as much as I can for me because I can. You know, I did the I did the sleeve for the Care and Consideration EP and all the animations. Um, yeah, so I, the answer, the short answer is yes, I did come from a design background, but it was only really with this project that I thought I'm going to buy it off all of it, do it myself, because it feels like the right thing to do with it being a personal project. Hugely, hugely. Another reflection of you, another reflection of your brain and what may, and the process, really, which is the, you know, at the heart of it all, really, isn't it? And the most important thing. And you can, and essentially, when you do, when I do, when I, when I do all of it, I can create the world. You know, I can create the reality of what, you know, what color and imagery is associated with the music and what, what sort of graphic motions I want to create that represent the music and stuff like that. So, Ultimately, it's like owning all of that and, and not relying on someone else to interpret what you've made and, and then make some artwork that reflects that. Where it's never really going to get inside the essence of it, like as if I do it, you know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, had to be done. Awesome. Awesome. So this comes out now, May, and you've let yeah. it sit as well. You've let it settle. You're not hurrying anything, which I think creates value. And, you know, it's, it's, it emphasizes the timelessness of the music, really, and the importance mm. of the, the artistry, which has always been at the heart of everything workforce related and everything mm. I think you've probably ever put your, your mind to doing creatively anyway. In the meantime, there must be a hundred. We were talking about doing lots of other projects and stuff like that. There must be loads of other things bubbling away in the background. Or have you purposefully taken yourself out of music and the creative process for a little while to let this settle and you know maybe doing animations and stuff like that instead? Yeah. So since I'm trying to think like the timeline here, I haven't written any music since I finished this album. No. So. I'm trying to think what I've been doing. <laughs> yeah. um, so I moved basically between August and the end of last year, I was hunting for a house and moving house. So a lot of my time was taken up doing that, um, which was, it was perfect timing really, because I finished this record and it was in production and I knew that I could start chipping away at some of the, um, some of the animations and assets to go with it. But because I was moving house and I'd finished this project, it lined up perfect. So I started doing that and it gave me a nice other focus from this. I I'm not itching to get back in the studio. I'll tell you, I'm really not. I'm, I'm, I'm aware that like doing an album project keeps you tied up for sort of, you know, a year, a year making it and a year once you've had it out, you know, I, I don't really, I'm probably going to do, I don't know what my next project is going to look like or when it's going to come out. And I haven't, I haven't written any new music. I've got, bits that I know are good that didn't make the cut on the record for the reasons I said, like, you know, just didn't really fit that I can work with. But I, I, yeah, I'm really, I think this is what happens when you do an album is you're, you're so done by the time it comes out. I just can't, I'm in here now, but only because I'm working on animation stuff. So this is just like where I come and do work. Um, so yeah, in the meantime, I'm, I'm basically learning loads of animation stuff. Um, Still keeping the brain going and still creative, still scratching that itch, really, isn't it? There's two there's two types of um, 
post-album mindsets. Some people, after some albums, are just eager to crack on. They still got that momentum. There's still something that they want to say or achieve or do. And other people, when they've done an album, and it all depends on so many different things, um, are like, no, I need to take a break. I need. To, I don't want to be in the studio for yeah. six months or however long it takes, really, until you're ready. It's a it's a funny one because like when I said to people at the beginning, I think I'm going to do an album. Lots of people are like, oh, I don't do an album. It's 2021 at the time. Like albums, just they just don't work. And I saw that as like a challenge to be like, well, hang on a minute. Like I love the album format. Like I rarely listen to playlists. I love album formats because it means, particularly if you like an act, it's like you're really getting inside. Again, another thing I just heard Flying Lotus say, where he's like, I'm listening to a record and I'll always try and identify the one that I don't like the most and try and think, is that the one I'm going to love the most after I've listened through this album five or six more times? And that just speaks to how like there is a magic about an album. Yeah, man. And it, it pretty much always is. The tunes that you're not too sure about to begin with are the tunes that you end up taking away for much, much longer and, and including in your personal collections or playlists or anything like that. Like I can think of like growing up all of the time, the tunes that I'm never too sure about are the ones that the ones you end up falling in love with the most, I think, eventually. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's almost, that's like, you know, kind of rising to the challenge almost like seeing like, right, okay, why don't I like that then? What is it about yeah. that? I love this yeah. band. I love, you know, they they resonate with me. So why is this particular song? Um, I guess it's know, sort of like, fight, it's sort of like standing up and fighting for the format in a world that doesn't like albums much nowadays. They want, albums nowadays seem like collections of tunes that could all fit in a playlist on their own, you know? Yeah. Um, or, or maybe don't yeah I mean, not not universally because there are still good albums but it's not seen as like the key format now because we're we're you know we're seen as like content providers so it's like as much content as possible as as regularly oh, as possible. i fucking hate that term i hate that term like i still i trotted out every now and again i did a big ranty piece for mix mag years ago like it, like i'd hear more and more younger musicians like be like i've got loads of content ready it's like no 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 i do the content mate i make the fucking content i make the shit that people read on the toilet you make music you make magic i'm the content so don't reduce your fucking artist down to the word content but so many people do and it's I like yeah I, I might try that out over the weekend if I've got nothing else to share because it's still pertinent now never ever call music content and it's down to managers and fucking agents and the business side referring to music as content and it depends it depends how you um define it really doesn't it because I, I think if you think about it in a positive way positive way it is content music but I think the word content nowadays comes with certain connotations that I don't think of when, with music, you know, like disposability, uh, quick, quick turnaround, lots of it, you know, people want to see 20 seconds, they're on to the next thing. And you can't, um, and I guess my, the other thing I guess that I was wrestling with with this album is like, you're trying, if you want people to be different and to engage with content for longer or to, to fight against the tide you have to sort of like foster that within your listenership and if you're not going to willing to sort of take that you know there's plenty of tunes on this record that i could have edited down to like three minutes but there's like a couple there's like one on there's like seven minutes most of them are like five six minutes you know and i feel like if you don't appeal 
to the better nature of like, or maybe appeal to like people that are willing to listen for longer, you're not going to foster that sort of listenership or that sort of like audience, you know? Um, you know, like I remember, I can't remember who said it, but someone said it to me at a gig. It was another producer, I can't remember who it was, but they were like, oh yeah, I, I keep my arrangements short now for Spotify, like three, four minutes. I'm like, what? Because <sighs> um, it just doesn't, it doesn't, I don't want to be dictated to by the platform and like and be dictated to to how like the masses consume music because I want to appeal to the people that still care about artistry and care about like have a long attention span you know like because yeah, they are also the people who are going to go out and buy the vinyl version they're the people who are likely to go and buy a t-shirt they're the people who are actually going to buy a ticket and come to a gig specifically to see you come up and shake your hand there's less of them, but they're the people who believe and invest in you. Like, but, if, but not only that, if you don't have people like that in the world, then less of that kind of art gets made, doesn't it? So yeah. like, yeah. we're all going to be reduced to these three, four minute things, you know? Um, I think that also speaks to like the homogenization of drum and bass as well, really. And it's something that I've given a lot of consideration to is that I think it's become homogenized because, and I, I'm aware my position and what I, am and who i am and stuff but it's become homogenized because it's over representation of people who look like me right so it's a, a sort of scarcity of breadth of ideas so i'm i'm really aware like how homogenized the reason like, i'm thinking well, why does everything sound quite similar and why is it all quite disposable and why is this mainstream sound permeating down this throwaway thing and it is that it's 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 not it's not just like people's race or their ethnicity or whatever it's like it's access to people who've got less money or people who i don't know have a voice but not the means to speak and like as things have progressed the the entry point is is tougher and you know even just like club ticket prices or like i don't know like the equipment or yeah. you know the access to the software pretty simple but some people like they don't have a laptop i mean and so i'm, I'm really interested in like how do we battle against that sort of homogenization somehow by because it's for the benefit of everybody like like yeah. the scene is yeah. like, i hate that word scene but like the whole thing is going to suffer if we have an over over representation of one type of experience or voice you know yeah massively and I think that is something that has been great that has come out of lockdown. And that's, you know, chatting to just before chatting to you is chatting to um, Nathan X, guy, um, like the drag DJ from Unorthodox, who's just setting up like an open deck session for a queer artist. And Mandy Dextrous is chatting to them a couple of days ago about like f offering free classes to non binary producers and giving them a voice in order to give other people opportunities has become a top priority for me really in terms of making sure that that diversity is there and that utilizing the platform for the best possible way really to yeah. advertise that and to create those that's, opportunities that's the other uh, that's the other side of the coin right this is where the whole debate comes about representation is um if you don't see yourself up there you're not going to be feel welcome as part of the the quote-unquote scene right yeah so how do we change that one ultimately it's about making people feel welcome isn't it and if and 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 while like those unorthodox events might not be the place where i would like to go and party i'm fucking glad that they exist because i feel like i feel like everyone should feel 
no, no one should feel excluded by virtue of who they are and what their identity is and what they're about, you know. And, 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 and I'm fucking glad they're there because it means a richness of ideas, a richness of tap, like in, you're, you're, you're bringing a richness to the tapestry of what we call drum and bass or club music, you know, and that permeates the whole thing. So, and, and so when, so when maybe, maybe it won't be so bad to be inward looking at other drum and bass acts if we've got a real richness of like voices and styles. Th yeah. And that's the thing. I, I, I'm quite responsive on like Instagram and stuff, particularly if someone reaches out who is from like an oppressed group. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to make an effort to speak to those people because they're the ones that could really do with my help. We do with them, some help, you know? Um, and I'm not, I, I don't, I don't, I hate, what I don't like about this debate is that people look at it and they go, Oh, look, it's just like doing it for social media. Like, well, actually for me, it's, it's deeper than that. It's like, I've got three sisters. My mum's like super engaged with all this stuff. I chat with them. They tell me their experiences about what it's like being a woman in the world. And, that, and then you can extrapolate that out to like, you know, people, trans people, uh, non-binary people. And you realize that actually, like if I was to have a kid in like now and they grow up and I haven't done a little, a little bit of what I could do to make them feel a bit more welcome. If they wanted to come into this scene, then that would feel what, like shit. You know, if I was doing, I'm probably not, I could do more. Right. But, um, if I don't try and at least make it feel more welcoming to people, that, to other people, then I feel like I'm doing a disservice to like, my own daughters or my own, you know, what, you know, non-binary kid I could have, you know, massively, massively same here, same here. I've got a daughter as well. And she constantly reminds me of this, you know, anything that we're watching, any movie that we're watching, anything that I might show her from that I grew up with. She's straight away. Where are the girls? Where are the girls? And now she's getting to like nine or 10 and developing her own taste in music and stuff. That's becoming more and more of a yeah. priority thought of mine as well, really. Mm. I think, it's, I think it's a very tough conversation, you know, like, um, or that, sorry, they're, they're difficult conversations that have to be had. And so much of it is about people looking at themselves and being honest with themselves. Like, for me, um, as like a cis white producer, um, I, think, I think with all of it, so much of it is about ego, because like, you want to believe that you're there on merit, right? And only on merit. As soon as it's quite, it's actually quite like, I find it quite alleviating to think, well, actually, like, I'm here, I'm, I've, I've worked really hard, and I know I've got talent and ability, but I've had a lot of advantages that have meant that I've been able to do better than someone who may have the same talent and ability, but doesn't have the same born advantages, you know? Um, but there's a lot of fragility around that. Like, a lot of people are going to find it hard to admit, like, in music or otherwise, that their success is down to, pure roll of the dice you've been born with some natural um yes. advantages you know um so there's been some difficult conversations around that i've 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 found myself in tricky conversations about it and um i felt that's what probably last year what made me feel a bit paranoid is because i feel like it, it it's all very tribal and if, if i try and have a conversation about something so well, actually you know that means and what you're saying there is a bit fucked up because of xyz um it, it can be not what I don't mean this is like a woe is me, but like it can be alienating for, for me, for you. Cause you feel like you're yeah. standing up for something that you believe in that's alienating you from your pack sort of thing. So, you know, like uh, I've made it pretty fucking clear on social media about my feelings about sort of Joe Rogan and John Peterson and stuff. But I feel like there's a, there's a sort of gravitation towards those people because we're having a crisis of 
male ego <laughs> uh, in, the, in the modern world. And so people are looking for like ways of understanding the world as someone that presents it to them in a way that fits with what they already think sort of thing. Um, you just watched a couple of pony uh, YouTube videos there, which have cobbled together a load of conspiracies for, and usually for another agenda and stuff. Definitely, man. Cool. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah. Thank you, Dave.